Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. And pray for us, too, that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ, for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly, as I should. Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Tychicus will tell you all the news about me. He is a dear brother, a faithful minister, and a fellow servant in the Lord. I'm sending him to you for the express purpose that you may know about our circumstances and that he may encourage your hearts. He is coming with Onesimus, our faithful and dear brother, who is one of you. They will tell you everything that is happening. My fellow prisoner, Aristocrus, sends his greetings, as does Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. You've received instructions about him, so if he comes to you, welcome him. Jesus, who is also called Justice, also sends greetings. These are the only Jews among my co-workers for the kingdom of God, who have proved a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you and a servant of Christ Jesus, sends greetings. He is always wrestling in prayer for you, that you may stand firm in the will of God, mature and fully assured. I vouch for him that he is working hard for you and for those at Laodicea and Hierapolis. Our dear friend, Luke, the doctor, and Demas send greetings. Give my greetings to the brothers and sisters at Laodicea and to Nympha, the church in her house. After this letter has been read to you, see to it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and that in turn read the letter from the Laodiceans. Tell Archippus, see to it that you complete the work of the ministry that you've received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. One of the things that I know is always going to happen on a week that I'm up to preach is that sometime during that week, our church secretary, Lynn or Dan Wall or somebody, is going to approach me and ask me for a sermon title. I always kind of dread that because I'm not, I'm not good at coming up with titles. I don't have that kind of creative skill to come up with some catchy little thing that, that says, yes, you'll want to hear this. Uh, usually I'm thinking, can I just tell you Colossians 4? Is that enough? They're never satisfied with that, but that's where my brain goes. A lot of people are really good at that, and I, re- I think that's uh, a neat skill. People can come up with those kind of things. I think of book titles and movie titles and the, the effort that goes into creating a title that will catch your interest, make you want to dig into the book, make you want to consider watching the movie. Like Pride and Prejudice. Now, there's a, there's a good title. I understand the title was originally First Impressions. Uh, I think the editor there was smart. Added a little bit more creativity to that title before they published or a movie like Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. 
If I was naming that movie, it would have probably been some guy tries to erase his memory. You know, not as catchy. Not, not making you want to dig in and see what it has to say. But as I was studying the passage that I'm going to talk to you about today, uh, I was encouraged by the fact that I was in good company because the editors of the NIV, they, they stuck these little section titles all over, you know, the NIV. Uh, those aren't scripture. Those are just them putting those section titles in. I thought I could even do better than their section titles for this passage. Because their section titles are Further Instructions. Now that makes you want to dig in and find out what's coming, doesn't it? Further Instructions. Or the final part is Final Greetings. That just feels like it, the movie credits are coming. Like, let's all just sit there and watch that go by. Uh, and I think those are sad titles. Because I actually think this is an exciting part of the letter. In this part, I think Paul is doing more than just kind of, well, let's wrap up a few things. I think Paul is saying something that really is kind of grabbing the attention of people at the end and really driving home what he wants to say to them, something he's passionate about, and, and really giving kind of a living, breathing example of what he's talking about at the end of this letter. Uh, in this letter, Paul begins by the same thing he's ending with here. He's telling them about being devoted to prayer for one another, and he calls them to live fruit-bearing lives so they're worthy of the Lord. Does that at the beginning, does that at the end. Uh, some say Colossians 2, 6, 7 is kind of a good summary of the letter. And here, is, here are those words. So then, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. You received Christ. Uh, Paul has told them you were dead in sin, and now you're alive in Christ because of what Christ has done for you. He said, you have received Christ. Now, be, be rooted in him. Be built up in him. Be strengthened in faith by what you've been taught. Let, let your thankfulness overflow. Be thankful for what he's done for you. Live a life that grows out of that. Paul's not saying here, do these things so you will become. Paul's saying, you are. Here's who you are. Hold on to that. Paul often does that in his letters. This is who you are. Now go be. Now go do. Now go live that out. And that's what he's doing again here. He drives home in the beginning of chapter 3. In the past, you were raised with Christ. Now you're hidden with Christ. And in the future, you will appear with Christ in glory. This is you. This is your whole life. You are in Christ. Everything about you has changed. Now go be. And he starts in the second half of the letter when he's telling us how to go be. He starts by talking about some things about the kind of character that should be ours, but also about the way we should relate to one another within the family of God. But then he gets to chapter 4 and he shifts his attention to those that he calls the outsider. And by that he simply means those who, who don't yet share uh, this life in Christ that we have. He says, how should we, how should we live towards them and relate towards them? And you know, Paul, this is, this is something he's passionate about. This is something he sacrifices a lot for and is living his life for. But it's interesting here where Paul starts. When he starts, start, says, I want to turn your attention towards those outside the walls of the church, outside the family of faith, and consider them. He starts by saying, devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. 
He doesn't put on an evangelism seminar. He doesn't just motivate you to go do. He says be devoted to prayer. He doesn't even just say pray about it and then let's get to the important stuff. He really kind of grabs hold and stops. Be devoted to prayer. Make prayer central in what you're going to do. Um, That's often not where I start when I want to you know, change the mind and heart of another and be a part of what God's going to do there. My mind doesn't often run to, well, let's stop and pray. Let's really invest in prayer because that's really the most important thing that you can do. Just a little later in chapter 4, Paul's going to tell about his friend Epaphras. Epaphras was the guy who uh, probably founded the church at Colossae. He's from there, Paul tells us. And he writes this about, about Epaphras in verse 12. Epaphras, who is one of you and a servant of Christ Jesus, sends greetings. He's always wrestling in prayer for you, that you may stand firm in all the will of God, mature and fully assured. I vouch for him that he is working hard for you and for those at Laodicea and Hierapolis. He's working hard for you. And what's the hard work he's doing? He's not there with them. The hard work he is doing is he's praying for him. This is a guy who cares so much for this church that he started. He's doing the hard work that they need done for him. He's devoted to prayer. He's wrestling in prayer for them. And Paul acknowledges this is hard work. You know, if you want to make people feel guilty in church in a sermon, talk about prayer. And all of us, you know, to some degree, can go, eh, come up short. Should be doing that more. But This is a place where Paul acknowledges this is hard work. He holds up Epaphras because he says this is is unusual. This guy wrestles in prayer for you. He works hard for you because he understands that's some of the most important ministry he can do for you, some of the most important work that he can do for you. When we think of heroes in the church, I don't know if our minds often start with those who do the hard work of prayer. When we think of evangelism, I don't know, our minds often run to those who do the hard work of prayer, that they're the real heroes of ministry of that work. Paul says that's the place to start. I think of myself as a pretty hard worker. I think I've kind of been raised to work sometimes, work too hard at the wrong things, but uh, work hard. But honestly, as I read this passage, it struck me. I think I'm lazy about prayer. I don't think that's a place I can say that I'm a hard worker. I pray. But I don't think I take it on the way Paul's calling us to take it on here, to be devoted to it, to see it as vital, the foundation of everything else that we're going to do as the church. Do the hard work. As I was reading this, a story came to mind of a time several years ago when our church was going through a kind of a difficult time, transition, and it was a hard one, and it had been hard on me, and I was kind of feeling sorry for myself and sitting in my office one day, and honestly, thinking about what my future was going to be. wasn't too sure at that point. And in the midst of sitting there, I get a call. And the call is from a man in the church that I had worked in years before in Connecticut. It was a man I knew fairly well, but I wouldn't say we were close. And he calls and just starts talking to me about what's happening in my life, how things are going. And the whole time back in my head, I'm thinking, why are you calling me? I haven't thought about you in four years. Why are you calling me? And finally, he says... You know, while you were here at the church and ever since, we've been in the same small group from the church. And every single week when our small group meets, we pray for you and we pray for your family. And I just thought today, you know, I kind of need to find out what's going on in your life. 
we've been praying for you for every week for years and kind of want to know how it's going and what we should keep praying for. It was, it was for me one of those God-sighting moments, you know? One of those moments you go, God, you are absolutely present. You absolutely care what's going on in my life because that call was just one of those reminders. God, you're here. But after I hung up talking with him, what really kind of struck me was, you know, I wonder how different my life has been the last several years because this group of people has faithfully been praying for me. I wonder how different my ministry would look without those prayers. I wonder how different things in my family would be without those prayers. I wonder how different my life with Christ would be without those prayers. You know, I didn't even know they were happening. But I will bet they were one of the most powerful gifts that anyone gave to me were the faithful prayers of God's children. What a wonderful gift. What if we all saw it that way? And Paul says, be devoted. If you want to reach and change the world around you, if you want to change the life of someone in your own home close to you, you want to change your neighbor, you want to change your world, be devoted to prayer because that is vitally important if, if things are going to change. And it's hard work. It is hard work. Man, let's be devoted to that hard work because the payoff is so huge. The opportunity we have to be involved in the work of God is so big. What a gift it is. What a gift it is that we give to others. And Paul asked for this gift. He told him in this letter that we've been praying for you. And now he says, we need your prayers. You need to be praying for me. He said that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Now, I got to tell you, if I'm in chains writing this letter, my first prayer request is, I would like to not be in chains anymore. Would you please do something, ask God to do something about that? Then you really seem to be on Paul's list. Paul's focus, what Paul cares about here is, please be praying that I will have opportunity to share the mystery of Christ and that I would do so clearly. And by clearly, I don't think he just means accurately, even though that may be part of it. I think it means clearly in the sense of that, that I, I wouldn't resist doing that, that I wouldn't let fear stop me from doing that, that I wouldn't compromise that message because of the obstacles that are before me, but that I would speak it out clearly when the opportunity is before me. Would you pray for me, even now while I'm in chains, that I can continue to do that? You know, most of us are not gifted uh, evangelists or public speakers. We're not called to that kind of ministry. Um, Paul here doesn't seem to be saying to them that you should be doing that. He's not calling them to do the same thing he's doing. But he also seems to recognize you don't need to do that to be a part of this work. Because your part is just important if you are praying for me as if you're here doing it. Your work matters. Your prayers matter. Matter of fact, your work of doing living life Living out this in Christ life with the people you're with, that is vitally important. This is what Paul's called to do. Others called to do other things. But Paul cannot do this by himself. He needs others. And we can't do the work we're called to by ourselves. We need others. We need the prayers of others. We need to be doing this together. And that is significant, significant hard work that we do when we pray for each other. Um, you know, one of the cool things about all that, when you really stop and think about it is, uh, no one can stop that. You know, there are people in my life that may not want to hear anything I have to say about Christ. They may not, they may resist 
strongly any influence that I want to bring their way. There are people in my world that surely do. But honestly, I get to love them and minister to them for the gospel in my prayers, and there's not a thing anyone can do about it. It's a gift I get to give, even if it's a gift they don't understand really is a gift. Prayer is a remarkable opportunity we have. Let's use it. But he also says, be watchful and thankful. Uh, And I think he's talking about this connected to our prayers. Be praying in a way that is connected to being watchful and being thankful. Uh, Ben Witherington, a New Testament scholar, said, Watchfulness suggests attentiveness rather than spiritual complacency. An attitude of expectancy, which can fuel a return to prayer over and over again. Be watchful. Look for what God is doing. Look Look for God's grace at work in the world around you and in the people around you. And then join that in your prayers. Prayers that are looking. I expect God to be out here doing something, and I'm looking for that, and I want to join that in my prayers. And I want to be thankful for it when I see it, when I recognize it. I want to be thankful when I see the answers to those prayers because, man, that makes the hard work of prayer a little less difficult, right? When you really see, honestly, God, you're letting me be a part of this. Man, I want to pray again and pray again. Let's do the hard work. But Paul doesn't just stop there by saying pray. He then does go on. He says, be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Love there the fact that he's saying the way you act, the way you speak, you should expect that to raise questions. You should expect that if you are... You are living out in Christ in you in your behavior and in your speech. That, that's going to stir some curiosity in people and raise some questions from some people. And he implies, be ready to give some answers. Be ready to talk when those opportunities come up. But he doesn't say start there. Start by living out Christ in you. Being who you are. First Peter 3.15 says something similar. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and with respect. Live in a way that makes use of every opportunity to be looking for them. One commentator said it's like being good bargain hunters. It's like you're going to the store and you're just always scanning everything to see where's the best bargain and, and don't miss it. Want to grab it. See, and that's, that's what we're called to. As believers, we are looking for every opportunity to grab it up, to make use of it for the cause of Christ, to have an opportunity to share the one who is in me and the one who is with me with somebody else. Don't miss those opportunities. But you know what we get caught up in a lot of times? It's like we think of this as, well, I just shouldn't, you know, mess it up. I shouldn't do anything wrong. I shouldn't say something wrong. I should be, I should be careful that I don't, you know, misrepresent the cause of Christ in something I do or say. But he's talking about something more than that. That, That's just too, uh, you know, inactive. He's calling us something much more intentional than that. For instance, about our speech, he says, be gracious, be considerate and kind. Or Peter says, gentle and respectful. Be active in, in your words of bringing goodness to other people. Be wise in your, in your behavior. 
brings that which is of Christ to them in the way you behave. I think he's contrasting this with a speech that he talks about a little earlier in chapter 3 that he says grows out of our earthly nature. It's the kind of speech that he says is anger and rage, malice, slander, filthy language and lies, selfish, inconsiderate language. He said, no, be about someone who's, who's seeing the other and being responsive to them. Make sure your, your speech is for them. It's not just being nice people. I'm glad we're nice. We should be nice. But nice, I think, is not intense enough here. It's not active enough here. Because Paul goes on and says that we should have speech that's seasoned with salt. Salty speech was a common metaphor in the ancient world. It meant witty. It meant amusing. It meant interesting. It meant insightful. Speech that people actually want to listen to, that engages them in some way, that's attentive to them. He's not saying just, just be careful. Be engaging. Be responsive. Be, be speaking and living in ways that actually stir up curiosity from the world around you. And be well-informed. Be ready to give an answer when an answer is needed. Don't need to be theologians. Don't need to know every answer perfectly. That's never necessary. You just need to be able to share the Christ you know, the Christ who is in you and with you. Share what you know. Be prepared. Do the work. Study. But just share the Christ you know. That's all we have to do. This isn't aggressive evangelism that I don't think Paul is calling us to here. But I think it is intentional. Uh, I think as evangelical Christians, we are often so predictable. We are so, we do what everyone expects us to do. That's kind of careful Christianity. But if you think about the Christ who is in us, Christ was anything but predictable, right? If you really think about who Christ was, he was... He surprised people. He was unnerving. He lived out a kind of a grace and a love and a responsiveness to people that kind of took him back sometimes. He calls us to something more than just don't mess up. Let's prayerfully join God's activity in our places of work, in our homes, in our church, in our community, and in our world. And let's be gracious in ways that are actually unnerving. Uh, The other day I got a call from my wife and she was over on the bypass and uh, had been in an accident and called me. A, a, a young girl had, uh, was not looking and ran in the back of the car behind Lori at a stoplight and then pushed that car into Lori and all three cars were totaled. So I was driving from here over there to, uh, you know, see what was going on. I could tell my wife was kind of shook up by it. But as I was driving in the other lane, I could see over where they were And Lori was standing there hugging the girl that had been in the accident while she was crying on Lori's shoulder. And I thought, see, now that's that's unnerving behavior, right? That's that's responsiveness to somebody else that says, it's not about my car, it's not about all these other things. It's, how are you doing? And what can I offer to you? I think that's, that's the kind of life we're called to live. We need to put words to it sometimes, but man, we need to live it long before we put words to it. Just the, uh, on the flip side of that, on Friday, I was, uh, I'd just been studying this, and I was heading home. I decided I was going to pick up a pizza on the way home. So online, I'd gone and ordered a pizza that was on my way home, waited like a half hour so it'd be ready when I went to pick it up. I'm driving home, been a long day, I'm tired, I get to the pizza place, walk in, 
and the girl's looking on the computer like, can't find my order. And my mind's going, oh, I'm going to stand here another half an hour or I'm going to be hungry. And I didn't want either one, you know. And immediately, a little bit of frustration was, now I'm not a guy who goes off on people at those things, but I was, I was getting kind of frustrated. I was like, I don't want to mess with this. Fortunately, I'd just been studying this, so I was very convicted at that moment as that frustration was boiling up in me a little bit and quickly kind of pulled back and reminded myself, who cares about your dumb pizza? Here's an opportunity before you to, to live out being in Christ. That's what you get to do right now in this moment. But you know, my first thought was, so be careful, don't express frustration. That was my first thought, because that's where we go a lot of times, right? The Christian life is just don't do the dumb things. Don't do the mean things. Don't do the angry things. But really, in that moment, to really live out Christ in me, it's more than that, because Christ wasn't the one who walked by those, the people that were unseen by others and just didn't get frustrated with them. Christ was the one who responded to them, who blessed them, who brought good to them. That's what it means to live this life in a responsive way. In that moment, I would have done much better, did little, but would have been done much better to be thinking, who is this young girl behind the counter? And how, even if it's just a word, do I bless this girl? Maybe it's leaving a tip in the tip jar. Maybe that's how I bless this girl. But how do I do that? Because Christ is in me. Man, I'm thankful for that. How do I bring a taste of that to the people around me in the way I live? And then Paul goes on in this letter and he tells us about all these people that are with him and ministering with him. And I think Paul drives home the fact that this in Christ life is not something we get to do by ourselves. We can't do it by ourselves. Apostle Paul sometimes gets labeled as some kind of loner or maybe a judgmental patriarch of some kind. I don't know why he's labeled that way often. Because when you look at the story of Paul, like right here, this is a man who had a remarkable community of people that he loved and loved him. But people also that he ministered with shoulder to shoulder, that he recognized their work is just as important as my work. We need each other to do this. And you hear it in, in the words he speaks about these people. He describes his companions as dear brothers, fellow servants, fellow workers, friends, and brothers. This list includes Jews and Gentiles, wealthy, poor, educated and uneducated, male and female, a slave and free. All respected and trusted fellow ministers, co-ministers with Paul. That's how he always speaks about them. The prayers were just as important as Paul, what Paul was doing. The, the people who were there to support and care for him while he was in chains, that work was just as important. That was just as much what it meant to be serving Christ and the work they were doing. It all mattered. But what also stood out to me as I read that list was I thought, this is not a community that happens by accident or happens naturally, Right? That kind of diversity with equality, that doesn't happen by accident. That's a very intentional community. That is a community that I think is built on a foundation of prayer. That is a community that, that grows out of people who are watchful for the activity of God around them. That's a group of people who are intentional about speaking into the lives of one another's, being a blessing to them and living with them in a way that reflects Christ. 
That's that kind of, because natural community is a whole lot of sameness. It's easy community. It's where we don't have to deal with that which isn't us too much. That's not the kind of community Paul had. Because again, this is the kind of community that's built on a foundation of prayer. This is a kind of community that reflects Christ in us. Let's be that kind of community. It's hard work. It really is hard work. It takes intentional choice. But I love what Paul is saying here is, I get it's hard work. It's going to be tough. You're going to fail at it. Fail at it miserably often. We're all going to have problems doing it. But man, it's good work. And I think that's what he's driving home at the end of this letter. Let's pray. Father, most of all, I'm thankful that we don't do this work without you. That if we are watchful and thankful, if we look, you are at work all around us. Father, we're thankful for the way you poured your grace out into our lives. Father, we're thankful for the way that you use us to, to be vehicles of your grace to others. Father, I pray you'd wake us up. Uh, I'm thankful we don't have to become something that we are not. We just have to live out who we now are because of you. In your blessed name, amen.